I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. And welcome back to Show Your Work. You know what's amazing is that uh, we taped our last episode a little early for us, and we're taping this one a little late for us, but it has the advantage of sort of speeding the winter by. Like, it's the end of March all of a sudden. It's Is it the end of March? I mean, it's going to be, by the time this podcast goes up, it will be the 19th. It's the day before the first day of spring. I thought it's the 21st. No? It's the 20th. Okay. I I think it's the 20th. See, this is when we were growing up, it yeah. would be the 21s, right? And I then so. and then they, I don't know, science or wrong information or whatever. What? It changed? Is this like Pluto? Let me let me just find out the spring equinox. Okay. The spring equinox 2018 is Tuesday, March 20th. You're, you're right. It always was the 21st, September 21st, June 21st, yeah. December 21st. So when did the science, well, when we were growing up at least. So when did the science people decide that it was going to be on the 20s? Is it all on the 20s or just spring? So let me see, say the, the autumn equinox. Yeah. Um, 2018 is Saturday, September 22nd. Okay, come on. <laughs> and, and the winter equinox, hang on. Winter Equinox 2018 is going to be Friday, December 21st. Right, as it should be. Anyway, so yeah, some, you out there, uh, we want your know-it-all. You're going to tell us it's like the moon or like the The moon cycle or the something, something. But I just feel like it was ingrained into us when we were growing up that it was on the 21s. Yeah, well, I also feel like this is like when Pluto got fired, um, I'm still not okay about the fact that poor Pluto. But didn't he get redeclared? He's a dwarf planet. Okay, so he is a planet. Well, it's, he's not like a planet, though. He's downgraded. He is demoted. Right. He lost his job. <laughs> I feel really sad about it. Yes. Uh, it says here uh, he did not meet the three. He. Why am I like <laughs> it, gendering? I well, yes. We yeah, I gendered it too. Well, I gendered it because of Pluto the dog, I assume. Yes, but nonetheless, um, and Plutarch from uh, from Hunger Games. But we would probably gender like we would probably genderize Venus. Sure. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway, there were three criteria to meet as a full sized planet, uh, and Pluto meets all the criteria except it has not cleared its neighboring region of other objects. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just like, he's not up to the task. I feel really, I feel, I, I have a lot of feelings about this still. Every time it comes up, I'm yep. like, man. No, they keep changing things on us. Even in writing, like Yasik still uses a double space after periods. Oh, I or read- at least his emails come out to me. Sorry. There's a silent finger being waved at us. I just sent you an email the other day. Okay. So someone who sent you a document. 
from one application so to another. So there's a preset somewhere that he still yes. allows a double space. I will say- And without, you do too. Well, I will say without naming any names that uh, the screenwriting community as a whole is deeply divided over the double space. Some people really feel like it makes a script more readable. Some people hate it. Yeah. And you're at the mercy of whomever. So it's still, yeah, sometimes it's still a, a thing. But I feel I've actually trained myself out of it. But then sometimes you have to set your software to do it. So then right. doing a double space when you're in a, a a double space already environment, sometimes you wind up with four and you don't know what your world is. Yeah. I'm just saying. But also, do you remember like indents the, uh, like for paragraphs? Do you remember we used to have to write like every paragraph you would do the tab and that's when you start oh, your yeah. paragraph. But now they've removed indenting a paragraph. Yeah, that's right. Some people don't even know this. Like there are some people listening who've never indented a paragraph. Yeah, I never really understood the point and it did seem kind of arbitrary. Like sometimes you did and sometimes you didn't. Yeah. But you're right. You just randomly started halfway through the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to write for a president of a university, so a lot of her correspondence would come, i do the first draft, and so it's as proper when you're writing for the president of an academic institution, it's the most proper, blah, 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 blah. And so um, I remember midway through my tenure there, the rules changed all of a sudden. I was like, what the fuck? Are we indenting or not? Like it became like a one-hour meeting when we had to decide. Um, and it's also, there are things like um, in that university, so it was the University of British Columbia, which meant that we would capitalize the the. Now, oh, the university, I that's see. That's right. But some institutions don't capitalize their the. Like my understanding is that it's the New York Times, capital T. I, I believe that that is the case. And yet, if I mentally sort of uh, punctuate it, uh, it's, yeah, it's the New York Times. Yes. Or the New Yorker, capital T. Well, the New Yorker for sure, because it's a specific New Yorker, one assumes. Uh, and But I guess if you think of the New York Times as a phrase, this is the summary of the New York Times, you know, like yeah. this is us commemorating our, our days in life and times, then yeah, it's the New York Times. Yeah. It's like the days of our lives. <laughs> Is it the days of our lives? It's not, but the yeah. phrase is, right? Like yes. like sands through the hourglass, yes. so are the days of our lives. Well, anyway, punctuation, sexy. Actually, that reminds me, I will give you this photo to put up uh, on the in the show notes. Uh, I have been traveling a bit and found a photo that just killed me. It is a police car, uh, and I will not say from where, but uh, so it's a police car. And then on the side of the police car, there's a slogan. And the slogan says, quote, professional law enforcement, unquote. I'm going to suggest that if you put professional law enforcement in quotes, it calls into question whether yes. it was professional <laughs> law enforcement in the first place. Why is it in quotes? I don't know. But it made me laugh so much, and it made me laugh also that uh, it makes me laugh. Actually, a few things that the 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 quoted professional law enforcement is actually under the word police. That's right. As if people need a definition for what police is. Right. But also, as we know, it's like sometimes when you you know sometimes you call the plumber and their truck says like 
the number one plumber. So they're clearly quoting somebody or theoretically quoting right. somebody. This is not that. No. Who are we quoting? I don't know. I don't know. Aren't you proud that I was able to get such a good I am. photo from a moving car? I am. Well, this 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 is something I do often. Like I'll I'll drive around, and you'll notice a new restaurant pops up, right, or a billboard or whatnot, and it makes me crazy that either it's spelled wrong or it doesn't make sense. Like the names of cars really piss me off. Go on. The way the, the way that certain cars or um, that certain restaurants are named. Like for example. I recently, no, maybe a couple years ago, drove by a restaurant sign and the name of the restaurant was Rogue. Do you want to eat at a place where the food will go rogue? Oh, I mean, I'm less bothered by that. Although, I mean, naming, as we know, is complicated and difficult. Uh, I thought you were going to talk about something else. Like, for example, sometimes you all say, hey, let's go to a place called Elaine's, right? right? Which is a, there's a place called Elaine's or Geo's, for example. Uh, yeah. There's a restaurant that we love and the full proper name of the restaurant yes. is Giorana's with an apostrophe is in belonging to Giorana. Giorana's really, really nice restaurant. Right. And so sometimes people shorten that to Geo's. Do you want to go to Geo's? And I think that's fine. I have no problem. Yeah. What I hate is when people say, oh, I'm just going to pick up some stuff at Rabba's and then we'll come over. There, uh, Rabba is a grocery store. Rabba Fine Foods. Yeah. There is no S. There is no yeah. apostrophe S. And people love yes. to apostrophe S things that aren't. Yes. Uh, you know, and I understand because there are places like Walgreens mm-hmm. or Loblaws or whatnot. Right. But they are forever saying, it's like saying, uh, I'm going to go to Re- Reeboks and yes. pick up some shoes and then I'll see you. <laughs> it's not Reeboks. Well, I also, I mean, speaking of the apostrophes, I hate it when people apostrophe Grammys. Like last night at the yeah. Grammys. They do it to the Oscars too, yes. Why? Because they don't know how to put the apostrophe. They don't know but where it's it like lives. it's like the word grapes. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't grape apostrophe S. But I think it comes from people not knowing exactly what a Grammy is. Like it's the Grammy Awards and people think that's a contraction. So then yeah. maybe you should apostrophe it. I mean, uh, I do find... First of all, I know that we could have a whole other podcast just on grammar and punctuation, Yasik. Uh, he looked horrified, just for clarification. But I do find that there are some grammar and punctuation rules that I know for a fact. I know the right ways to do them, but I don't always have the the rule to explain the why. Right. It's just like, no, that's wrong. Stop doing that. Yeah. But you can't always articulate why it is that that's wrong. Well, and generally there are things that are now acceptable as language. Um, so, for instance. Impacts. Impacts. But, you know, a common, a thing that has just, but a thing that, for example, has just sounded better, but I'm not sure is better, is here's. So, here's Barney and Elvis. Mm-hmm. But it's not here's Barney and Elvis. It's here are Barney and Elvis. That's right. So if you're looking at a picture, like it happens a lot online. Actually, people used to contract it. People used to do that, right? Hearer. Uh, people Hearer. used to, yeah, which yeah. is stupid because you're contracting one letter. Yeah. And it's dumb. Yasik is giving us some look like he's getting bored. Oh, no. he. What Yasik is, is talking about is me versus I. So um, it's... 
it's beginning to sound more and more correct to say, Yasik was talking to Duanna and I, which is not That's correct. not correct. But if you say, Yasik and I were arguing, well, no, that's not right. Uh, Yasik and I probably were arguing, but uh, it's something where even if Yasik wasn't involved, you would still be doing it, then I is correct, which is to say, Yasik and I went to the concert. I don't think that's the like the common mistake. The common mistake is when you are constantly repeating I or sorry, the common mistake is when you are constantly re- replacing I with me. I agree, but that's where it comes from. Because because Yasik and I is correct in the previous sentence. Yeah. Yasik and I subject. went to the concert. Yes. Uh who was arrested at the concert? Oh, it was Yasik and I. Yeah. That's where people make the mistake. Right. And the easy the easy fix for that is using the collective pronoun us or we. Right. It was us. Right. Now, see, this is where we differ is that I agree with you, and Mm -hmm. I know that's an easier way around it and the right thing to do. I'm not sure I would have the phrase collective pronoun at my disposal. So, you know, I'm I'm happy that you're here. I don't even know that collective pronoun is the right uh, reference to it. It's just that it's easier for me. That's how I think about it. But yeah, I mean, sometimes... To me, it's it's what sounds it's beginning it's beginning to sound more and more correct, and that's why you just pick it up everywhere. Which is why I'm wondering: in a hundred years, given that it's generally spoken that way, if language will just change? It's an organism, right? Of course it will. Of course it will. But that's hard when there are supposed rules, and when even though we're English speakers, English is notoriously arbitrary in its language, right, mm-hmm. and in its rules and so forth. Uh, so it's hard for people to adapt their speech. Yeah, well... And I will never agree with impacts. That impacts me because of this. Yeah, no. It has an impact upon. Yes. But don't get me started on wary, weary, and leery, the three most mm-hmm. misused and transposed words in the English language. Yeah. However... In short, whether or not you love the band Vampire Weekend, they have the single best line ever published in popular music. Who gives a fuck about an Oxford comma? We right. do. We do. We do. Yes. Um, shall we? Let's do it. Who gives a fuck about fashion? I mean, we do. Yes. Uh, yeah, we do. Sure we do. Lots. Yeah. So we're... Or we give a fuck about style, right? Yes. Part of the joy of... Uh, working where we work and alongside where we work is getting to sometimes tell the difference between what's fashion and what's style and what's like the business of fashion as opposed to what's like looking good and loving clothing and style and decor and whatever else. And the advantage of fashion more and more, especially in Hollywood and how a fashion deal matters. We've talked about this before, but, you know, we're kind of revisiting it and expanding it now because Emma Stone's new photos or new campaign for Louis Vuitton just launched the other day. So it's handbags, it's Emma Stone. The partnership was confirmed last fall, um, and we've seen her wearing Louis Vuitton at events, but we haven't seen the editorial or we haven't seen sort of the campaign. So um, it's Emma Stone, the bags are lovely. Uh, Rumor has it it was $10 million. Okay, so let's back up a bit. So let's talk about the mechanics then of a fashion deal, because there are uh, places where, of course, we always ask, who is so-and-so wearing? And this is one of the things that you always kind of uh, make a point of pointing out on the red carpet, saying, who are you wearing? Being asked, who are you wearing? Was never just about 
bragging about, look at my dress is made by Chanel or whatever. It's a, it's a business endorsement. It's a, it was kind of an indication of strategy, right? Of it's like saying, why did you choose to do such and such a play tonight? But the mechanics of how it all goes down and the fact that it takes, uh, a while to develop, but, uh, these are meant to be long-term relationships, right? Yep. So what does that mean? So, uh, we said that the announcement of the Emma Stone and Louis Vuitton partnership was kind of came out last fall and now it's the end of March or maybe it's almost the spring solstice and (laughs) Equinox spring. Yeah. And, uh, so now we're seeing her first campaign. So, you said it's $10 million. How long does that cover? Well, that do we was think? the rumor. Um, I don't know actually how long that covers, um, but I would assume it's certainly like to me, that sounds about two to three years. Right. And so one of the most famous endorsement deals in recent history, or the one that gets the most press uh, and is top of mind because we're talking about Emma Stone is Jennifer Lawrence's uh, long-standing contract with Dior was seems to have been going on since she was born, like she was promised to yeah. them at birth, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, is it fairly normal for one of these one, for a deal like this to be a, a good few years long, or is it meant to be a shorter relationship? Is it meant to go on indefinitely? Well, I think that the the intent is. The intent is for, yeah, you to be the face of that brand for quite a while. Preceding Jennifer Lawrence's Dior campaign is Charlize Theron. So, or Charlize Throne. Um, that's how is the pr- correct pronunciation. Throne. Uh, now she's telling us this? Well, I mean, not now. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's just that, like, in interviews, I think when she was doing, what, uh, Atomic Blonde interviews, that was when it was like their own, their own. Sure. Anyway. Okay. So Charlize, can, yes. we can say, Charlize's Dior contract has been much longer than Jennifer Lawrence's. I would say that Charlize is probably, you know, about 10 years now, if not longer. Like she's the Lifetime Achievement Award. She's getting the gold watch. Yeah, that's right. And there are other celebrities, you know, Vanessa Parody and Chanel have been ongoing for a long, 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 long time. Um, do you know, I don't know if a lot of people were paying attention to Vanessa Parody at the beginning of her career, but there's a very well-known, especially in France, Chanel ad uh, with Vanessa Parody, and she's swinging in like a birdcage. Yeah, yeah. So that's that was like, I feel like that was 20 years ago or a very, like a long, long time ago. So yeah, you have spokespeople for major labels that can, that that relationship can be decades. Right. Um and so I guess then the the question is, because I don't remember one dissolving necessarily, but there are sort of shorter relationships, right? There are. So Kristen Stewart is with Chanel now and has been steadily for, I would say, three, five, three to five years. But before then, she was working with Balenciaga. So at the time, Nicolas Gasquer um, was with Balenciaga. He's now with Louis Vuitton. So, um, but yeah, Kristen Stewart with Balenciaga was probably under two years and then a year passed maybe. And then it was Chanel. So what do we think, uh, of this? Like, obviously the benefits to the brand are obvious, right? 
the contract says you're going to wear our designs to, I don't know, every major appearance where you're going to be photographed? Or do they maybe, they may lay out uh, no fewer than 10 appearances a year or something, let's say. We also probably could assume that included in the contract somewhere, because these are not like just, I think sometimes we see celebrity Instagrams or whatever, and it looks like, oh, look at this beautiful bag I got sent. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, I will carry this and maybe I'll Instagram it and that'll sort of be the quid pro quo. But when we get to this point of a, of a longstanding, uh, of a longstanding ambassadorship, Make no mistake, there are pages and pages of contracts. There are clearly defined terms. Uh, this is not just a, a gifting or a handshake deal. No, and to your point, Leslie Freemar, who's one of the power stylists in Hollywood, one of her clients is Charlize. She was on The Social a few years ago, and we talked to her about the requirements and the fine points of the deal. And for someone like Charlize, for example the biggest, biggest, biggest events, the Oscars, she needs to be in Dior. Now, if she shows up at Comic-Con or at a screening, it doesn't necessarily have to be Dior. But the most high profile, most visible, most eyeballs on what you're wearing expectation is that, of course, you go with the brand you're aligned with, which is why Jennifer Lawrence is always showing up at the Oscars and at the biggest film premieres. Like if she's on a press tour... And let's say on the press tour, there's Tokyo and Rome and London and New York and LA. Maybe Rome and Tokyo, she can wear, I don't know, Stella McCartney, but London and New York and Hollywood, LA probably have to be Dior. Right. And I bet they are laid out as such as line items in that contract. And probably it says you have meaningful consultation on what you will wear they're not just sending you a thing. Yeah. But uh, but there's an idea there. There's actually a great story in Anna Kendrick's book uh, about being sent an outfit to wear to, I believe it was a Louis Vuitton event. Uh, and she didn't love it, but this was just, hey, you're invited and here's an outfit to wear. And she wore it and felt like a weirdo. Uh, but when you get to the level where you're in this long, long partnership, of course you're thoughts and needs are going to be taken into account. So we see the benefit for the brand. And the benefit for the performer, of course, is, well, you're getting paid a lot of money and you have to wear something. And it would probably be from one of these lines anyway, right? Like, I don't think, can you think of a, of a collaboration that where you've been like, oh, that's a real weird fit? Not usually, right? It's usually something that kind of fits with their brand. Usually. I mean, more and more we're seeing less missteps, but there have been some. Do you remember? Maybe you don't. And if you don't, it's because it's, it was quite short-lived. Blake Lively and Chanel. Like, I can see those words written together in a sentence, <laughs> yeah. but no, I don't have a look in my mind. That's right, because it, it didn't last for very long. And what's interesting about that example is is that Blake Lively is known for by some people to be like a fashion person. Um, and people look at what she wears and care about what she wears. So it was in the, it was in the moment. Oh yeah. Blake Lively and Chanel, except that Blake Lively isn't really the Chanel aesthetic. Right. Or what Chanel now is evolving to be right. Chanel kind of 15 years ago, maybe was, 
uh, but there's been a major kind of re coolification for lack yeah. of a better word. There's right? an edge to Chanel a little bit. Like definitely to me, Kristen Stewart and Chanel make sense. Uh, Willow Smith and Chanel make sense. But Willow again, Smith is also doing Chanel. Kind of a new Chanel, right? And my yeah. level of understanding of, I, I can name you all the, fa- all the fashion houses, but not always the various moves of who is the, uh, the head designer in the moment from years play era to era. There was a time not too long ago when Chanel meant, uh, remember the like pink tweed jackets over jeans, like the kind of Paris Hilton era? Yeah. Uh, at which point I think that would have been more of a Blake Lively fit sure. than it is now. And so, now, yeah, the pink tweed jacket. And the pink tweed jacket, of course, we can see still exists. That is a, that is a Chanel staple, except it's going to be paired with drop crotch pants and an Oxford or right, dark makeup. Right, as opposed makeup. to uh, Citizens of Humanity, yeah. wide legs. Why were we doing that? Um, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah, things things change for so, sure. So and I, I would say more and more, you're, we're going to see less and less of that. I think that the, um, I think that the fashion houses and the stylists and social media have all converged together to really set the right tone in the moment for ambassadorships and who's chosen. Um, to go back to Emma Stone and Louis Vuitton, I do think that's a good marriage. Well, here's the only thing though. She was wearing Louis Vuitton at the Oscars Mm -hmm. and I don't know anybody who liked it. No, I don't know anybody who liked it either. And yet I almost think that not, I, I almost think that we didn't like it in a different way than the way we don't like the Jennifer Lawrence boring Dior thing. Yeah. Jennifer Lawrence in Dior is always about uh, a sort of princess cut and a pastel, neither of which I'm dying to see her in. It, it, I've seen it once. It's good. I actually liked Jennifer Lawrence's Oscar dress quite a bit. Yeah. Um, this year. This year. Yeah. Uh, but that's the exception for her ball gowns rather than the rule. Right. And that actually may be signaling um, the fact that there's a new head designer at Dior, right? So in the tenure of Raph Simons, um, at Dior, there wasn't a lot of interest and it was starting to feel same, same boring for Jennifer Lawrence with Dior. I wouldn't say that our complaints about Emma Stone in LV at the Oscars were in that same vein because there was still something different. It didn't land but at least it was trying to hit a, 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 at least it was trying to hit a different flavor yeah it was doing it was doing a thing yes yeah. i yes and i will always appreciate doing a thing but and this is where you and i are both similar and different cuz our styles are not the same but they are both about trying a thing sometimes uh trying something being of interest I guess my question is whether these relationships are restrictive. Like it's, you can say all you want that, oh, they're trying stuff and the designs are new and exciting and fresh, but it, even the idea of this to somebody, I'm never being offered a clothing deal, like rest assured. But even so, I feel a little bit harnessed on their behalf. Is that short-sighted of me? I think you can look at it both ways. It's We're going to talk about it being restrictive in that Jennifer Lawrence example because we haven't been liking or 
for a few years, we weren't really liking what we were seeing. And we were like, oh, but what would she wear? Wouldn't it be so much better if she could wear something that was a lot more interesting and she wasn't only presented with the 25 looks that uh, Dior was sending over to her because that's what was on their runway. So in one sense, yeah, restrictive perhaps. In the other sense though, from a broader picture, as we have continually analyzed, it's also freeing. You get that $10 million, you get that brand behind you, and then you are able to, in the case of someone like Michelle Williams, do small movie after small movie after small movie. Like, take the (laughs) now infamous $650,000 paycheck for all the money in the world, as opposed to, what, the $5 million that Mark Wahlberg is getting, and And listen, we're not saying that $650,000 isn't a lot of money for us. However, in the industry... Yeah, it's a tenth of what he made. That's right. In the industry, it's not a lot of money. And that's that was a studio picture for Michelle Williams, remember. When she does an indie, my God, it's like a a fraction of that, right? Yes, absolutely. And of course, we all know this, but just to underline it, this is why uh, your faves do the big movies. This is why they do a, a comic book franchise or whatever. Not the comic book franchises aren't great, but they weren't always. Mm-hmm. And they do those for the big paychecks so that they can then do the indie movie yep. and make $8,000 for the year or whatever it is yeah. and go, yeah, okay, that's fine. You know who the dream is, though? The dream, and of course it has to be this person, um, and of course she's the trailblazer, is Rihanna. Because Rihanna has a Dior deal. Mm-hmm. She somehow is able to be like affiliated and aligned with Dior, but also with Puma. Right. Well, those two don't conflict. They right? don't conflict. And yet we don't see Rihanna, to use that word that you used before, constricted right. or obligated to wear Dior to the Grammys for sure or to the big, big event for sure. She feels like wearing Dior, she will wear Dior. If she's at the Dior show, sure, she's going to wear Dior. But like, we don't we don't think of Rihanna Dior the way we think of J-Law and Charlize Dior. Well, and it may be that her, again, I haven't seen these contracts, but my gut says it may be that her contract is worth less with them, and thus she only has to hit Five events a year instead of 15. Yeah. Uh, it may also be that because she goes to different kinds of events, mm-hmm. uh, there are things that Dior can send Rihanna to maybe wear to the Met Ball that Jennifer Lawrence is not going to wear to the Oscars. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, there are greater uh, extensions of where the style can go. Yeah. So, you know, that's fair enough. I also think about people whose endorsements are not clothing related. Uh, people often talk about Kerry Washington, um, who is kind of the queen of endorsements, but she doesn't have a clothing deal. Kerry Washington is Neutrogena. Kerry Washington is L'Oreal. Mm-hmm. Kerry Washington is Movado Watches. Yeah. And she's Apple Music. So I don't know what those deals are worth, but she's making a lot of endorsement money and gets to wear whatever she wants at a given time. So is that a, you know a different path that is arguably as lucrative, give or take how long it takes to endorse four things instead of one clothing brand? Well, I I love Kerry Washington, and we've seen that Kerry Washington is very strategic. 
um, extremely savvy. So in terms of her overall brand image and her career focus, she, I would like to believe, is selectively choosing which lanes to go in where her endorsements are, are, are um, considered. For someone at the beginning of their career, I think this is also a really exciting time that these kinds of opportunities are available to a new crop of star. Yara Shahidi, for example, has recently in the last year, year and a half, emerged as a fashion star. Right. She's on Blackish. She's now on Grownish. And so um, at a very recent fashion week in Paris, we saw Yara Shahidi front row at some of the major labels. It has not yet been announced what she's going to be aligning with. But certainly, if I'm managing Yara Shahidi's career, if I'm Team Yara, they're looking at all those things right now and saying, okay, where do we commit you? Where don't we commit you? How long should we commit you for so that it sets you up when the TV money is no longer there and when you're looking for the next jump after you've played Zoe Johnson and when you want to put Zoe to bed, where that takes you. It can give us a lot of freedom in terms of where we choose your acting roles because we have this bank. Love that. And I think that's really, as you say, it's really strategic and it's really exciting to be able to craft it in that way. And we're going to talk about that a little later on in a different context. But the other thing that's most interesting about what you just said is that Yara Shahidi has emerged as a style star. And what I think is so important about that and what distinguishes uh, Rihanna and Yara Shahidi uh, from Jennifer Lawrence, let's say, is that, and of course I'm not naive, I don't think they're not working with stylists because of course they are, and stylists are incredibly important uh, in this conversation, but She's a style star already without having an endorsement deal. She's yeah. already somebody who wears the outfits rather than they wearing her. Yes. She enjoys the game, that mm-hmm. part of the game. Kristen Stewart, I'm sorry, has never appeared to enjoy this part of the game in the same way. Sure. Uh, so it's exciting to me to see somebody who appears to enjoy Mm-hmm. the game. I think uh, Kristen Stewart might be coming around to yeah, that I lately. With, yeah, I agree with but you. But I agree with you 100% at the beginning, for sure. Not in the way that Yara and, for example, Zendaya has been enjoying the status of being a style star. Yeah, or, you know, and the freedom of it as well, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think there's there's trying something and knowing that there will be another event to wear something else ridiculous to in a little while. And you can try it on. I think there's more freedom when you are uh, a newer star, right? There's a bigger impact kind of in the press, but also maybe monetarily if Jennifer Lawrence makes a big misstep, if she makes something that doesn't appeal to potential moviegoers, uh, if that alienates them. uh, So when we talk about even say a Kerry Washington, it's hard to offend with face cream, right? It is harder to alienate people than it is with a real outlandish design. Uh, I want to kind of point out too, as we're talking about stylists that, or as we're not talking about stylists, that they make the difference, right? Between uh, an endorsement that seems tacked on and one that is effortless. Uh, As we were talking, I was Googling and I found a picture of Emma Stone in Louis Vuitton at the London premiere of Battle of the Sexes, Mm. and it is the antithesis of 
anything I would ever like or endorse, mm-hmm. and it is perfect. Mm-hmm. She's wearing a uh, a white printed drop shouldered ruffled gown, and that alone would be kind of foreign to me. But she is, pardon the cliche, she is glowing. She looks so happy. Uh, her makeup is kind of it just makes it special, but she still kind of looks fresh. Her hair looks easy. She looks easy and happy. And it has made a dress work that I would have sworn up and down was impossible to make work on anyone. So that's the stylist, right? And that's where people say it's a, it's a partnership. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely the stylist and her stylist, I believe, I'm just checking right now, it is, yes, it's Petra Flannery, one of those power stylists in the industry. And Petra is also Zoe Saldana's stylist. Oh, well, that makes sense. Exactly. And so you can see sort of the commonality in the clientele. And I always go back to this um, and I will keep hammering at home the the quote that uh, Zoe and Petra together gave the Hollywood Reporter a few years ago on the Hollywood Reporter's annual top stylists in Hollywood list when they were discussing the importance of their collaboration and what it meant to their career, Zoe actually said, it is part of my negotiations with the studios. You put me in this movie, and of course, primarily you're going to put me in this movie because I'm right for the role. But beyond that, here's my added value. My stylist and I work together so that when it comes time to sell this movie on the press tour, those outfits are going to be talked about. They're going to show my pictures around the world. And that is an ancillary way of of giving awareness to this film and boosting and amplifying the fact that this film is coming out. So she verbalized the fact that fashion is part of the work. But what I love about that is that the other part of that is when she says, oh, it's part of my negotiations, Mm -hmm. that means, hey, studio, who's hiring me for this movie, you are going to hire Petra, my stylist, or you're going to jack up my salary enough that I'm going to pay her her That's right. increased rate or whatever. It's one of those situations where, uh, what's that expression? A rising tide floats all boats, right? Yes. Where this is women advocating for one another. This is where my work benefits your work. And it's not that I'm behind the scenes getting you dressed for whatever. It's that we together elevate each other and elevate the product and yep. everybody wins and of course, it is one of the many reasons you are always talking about style and fashion being an integral part of the business and not something that is embarrassing or diminishing to talk about. No, and that's why the who are you wearing question is a lot more nuanced. Certainly, we don't want to say it's the only conversation, but the red carpet now more than ever, is seen as a business. It is a part of the work. The question is not what pretty dress did you choose, but who is the designer who best exemplifies the way you want to be seen in the context of this role, right? Like that's what the question is supposed to be. That said, do I think Juliana Depandi is always having that intent in her mind? Depandi. Always with the Depandi. Because it's a thing now. (laughs) Yes. Juliana Rancic. Whatever. Um, Yeah. Do I think that that's always in the mind of every reporter on a red carpet? No, not exactly. They just know it's a thing to say. But that is the intent. 
And I wonder, I wonder then if we put the question to celebrities um, about the work, you know, let's, hey, Emma, you look great. Let's talk about how you and Petra worked together to put this look together and what you were thinking. What were your inspirations? You know, who do you want to shout out in terms of the artisans, the craftspeople who, who put how many hours of beating into getting this jacket right? I think that that is, listen, that would be a porny conversation for me to listen to. And it's a different way for them to be able to talk about who are you wearing. I mean, it would be a fascinating conversation. And as you say, the consistent transparency of those conversations or Emma Watson's uh, Instagram, the press tour, which was all about the designers and designs Mm -hmm. and stylists behind her Beauty and the Beast tour, are proof that that is fascinating and exciting, not something to be hidden behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And we can we can even expand this conversation further and put it in people's minds to, to bookmark it as something to take note of. But when you consider Emma Stone now with LV, she's not the only major name with LV. As mentioned, uh, Michelle Williams is LV, Alicia Vikander is LV. So it's always been something I wish we could have more transparency about. Who decides and how? You mean who's at LV going yes to this person, no to that one? No, I mean, so LV has a collection, let's say whatever, their fall, winter 2018. Yeah. And so you have, I just named three ambassadors and you have the marquee dress. Who gets to wear it? Well, first, it depends what you think is the marquee dress. Honestly, I'm, uh, you know, a couple of, there was an event a couple of years ago. Was it the Emmys where Tessa Thompson wore a rainbow lame dress that was a showstopper? Tessa Thompson's a style deal. She's not the biggest style deal. Yeah. In my mind, that's the marquee dress. Mm -hmm. And it was not on the marquee person because sometimes I don't think the biggest people choose the fucking greatest dress. Sometimes they go safe and it freaks me out. Yeah. So is it who's most likely to wear it? I don't know. And that's where the fun is for me when we're writing about this and we're observers of the fashion slash celebrity landscape. That is where my eye is going to go. I'm going to look at the runway. I'm going to be like, okay, is Emma going to get this one? Or is Alicia going to get this one? Or is Michelle going to get this one? And if you're a fashion house and you're choosing ambassadors, do you want to choose them in a way that all of your ambassadors don't necessarily live in the same style lane? Because I would say that the distance between Emma to Michelle to Alicia is not that great. It's not far at all. No. Exactly. And yeah, they could really benefit from included, like who, like who does Zoe Kravitz wear? Like, that's somebody you could see a little more of. Zoe Kravitz was recently seen at Saint Laurent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know if that means, like, a a, a Saint Laurent partnership with Zoe the way that Emma has just done with LV. But to me, if you're a brand and this is – and you have an ambassador strategy, there should be a bigger swing. Like, at Chanel, there's Vanessa Paradis and then there's Willow Smith. Yeah, but let's be honest. Vanessa Paradis uh, is not a marquee name, as you would say, Mm -hmm. in the same way, right? Yeah. Uh, And frankly, neither is Willow Smith. 
in a box office drive kind of way. She may yeah. be again, and she's a known quantity, but mm-hmm. she's not a, a she's not an A list name, right? And I don't know whether yeah. Do you want somebody who's been in Big Little Lies as your safety kind of yeah, and then from there have more experimental types. I mean, the other thing is, I'm sure we could spend time talking about this, the way that uh, the way that the hierarchy works within fashion houses, right? Like, not all designs are hand-sketched by Nicolas Gesquier. Yeah. There's a whole team and hierarchy and whatever. Like, I'm sure there are one or two, well, let's try that, designs to see if they float, right? Or maybe they put them in the resort collection or whatever, uh, and maybe those are the ones that are earmarked for the people who are not your your style stalwarts, but who are a little more uh, likely to try stuff and don't necessarily need to be married to your brand for the long term. All things we're going to be looking at, we're seven weeks to the Met Gala. Oh my God. Oh, You and your timing and your countdown. Yeah. You're not like, oh, we're done with uh, we're done with award season or whatever. No, we're seven weeks to the Met we're Gala. We're seven weeks to the Met Gala. People are already putting together. People are already putting together their looks. Blake Lively, for example, just talked about how her dress is being made right now. So she's already decided. Rihanna is one of the co-chairs. Uh, delightful. You can bet for sure that that's already being thought about. So yeah, right now is definitely when if you haven't thought about what you're wearing to the Met Gala and it's already, and it's not already in construction, then you're in trouble because most of the bigs will have it like handled by now. Uh, and last year, the win, we talked about how we debate and fight over who gets to write about what last year it was, uh, Solange Knowles wearing a, like a parka suit, uh, by Tom Brown. And then this year, um, the parka designer Moncler uh, had a whole bunch of dresses that they showed yes. uh, at Fashion Week. So it's kind of influential in that way as well. She was ahead of the game. That's right. Uh, but that's a high, high mark to beat. That was a pretty amazing moment in a, a, in a medium exciting Met Gala well, or a gala with a great theme that people didn't know how to deal with. Well, the theme this year is around religion. Ooh. I know. <laughs> so, yeah. So we're going to see some, like, I'm getting jacked up about it already, as we always do with the Met Gala, right? Because this is like that one event that is fashion explosion where we can scream at the top of our lungs and get angry and be euphoric. Of course, Rihanna always brings it. So, um, but our conversation, yeah, right now is Leading up to that, this is definitely the preoccupation among the Jennifer Lawrences, the Rihannas, the Emma Stones. Emma Stone, in her first year as LV ambassador, I would imagine 100% that she would be there. There's going to be a lot of pressure on, yeah, to to make it work. And as you say, the theme is religion-based. I'm going, okay, well, I really don't want to see people in too many annoying, like, veils a la Katy Perry. Yeah. But I might have to get myself one to watch on the couch. <laughs> Take a photo. I want to see. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So something we've been saving for the podcast, which we have not covered on the blog because this is such a show-your-work discussion, is the controversy around the crown and the salary uh, discrepancy. So in short, uh, Claire Foy, it was revealed, was paid less than uh, Doctor Who. What's his name? Matt Smith. <laughs> Matt Smith um, for her role playing the Queen. And they have since announced that going forward, the Queen will never be paid less than anybody else. Right. Uh, and, you know, there have been all kinds of conversations about various parts of this. Oh, we're going to fix it. They're recasting the show now, of course, because... The, the Queen and Prince Philip are aging. So that's kind of why this came out. This is not the same thing as Emmy Rossum holding out until she gets paid the same as William H. Macy or similar. Uh, I was particularly annoyed that they were like, oh, we put the money onto the screen. Like, she got to wear nice dresses, so fuck you. However, uh, what's most interesting about this conversation to me now has been the reaction from... Uh, basically industry people, right? Because on the one hand, is this the same thing as uh, the Michelle Williams and Mark Wahlberg disparity that you talked about? Not quite. Uh, at the time, they said Matt Smith was a bigger star and had more credits to his name, whereas Michelle Williams versus Mark Wahlberg, like, uh, we can talk about why he makes more box office, but they're a pretty even She's match. a multiple... Oscar nominee. Yes. First it, of all. It, yeah. I hesitated because it pains me to say that they're an even match, but I, yeah. but whatever. They bring yeah. something each to the table. Here's what is, has been most interesting to me, though, is that there are not, uh, not a few people who have said, uh, well, this is the way TV works, that your, or film for that matter, your quote, your rate that you're paid is based on what you made for your last job. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a difference between, I think, entertainment and other industries that often people know what you were paid. Sometimes it's in the press or sometimes your representation will say, well, her quote is this and it's reasonably easy to check. So mm -hmm. that's a thing that happens. So a lot of people have said, this is what, this is where it goes. You build as you go. Judd Apatow tweeted a few days ago uh, in, in response to the New York Times uh, story about this, Judd said, Quote, this is how TV works. People who are getting a break and don't have quotes make less than people who do. It is usually not about gender. It is often illogical. She should have gotten that raise for second season for sure. They always make you fight an ugly battle for it. And before we start to discuss his quote, mm -hmm. uh, I should point out that there are a mix of single and double spaces within this tweet. <laughs> okay, so... Should we tackle first his whole thing of this is how TV works? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Isn't that the conversation we've been having, though, over not just the last six months, but over and over and over again, that the way things work is not how it should be working? I mean, yes and no. You know, his 
larger point, I guess, is that somebody who has a proven success on their resume should naturally be, you know, if we talk about casting the best people for the role, as we say, then uh, you don't want people to not deal in projects just because they are bigger successes, right? It used to be uh, that people did TV and then they went on to films and they would never go backward Mm -hmm. uh, because that was not the thing. And there's much more movement now, right? There's TV, there's film, there's whatever. Yeah. Uh, And so I think that, you know, if you are a star and a draw in your own right, then it's reasonable to say, well, no, you're not going to start at scale. Scale means the the minimum you can make as per the union. Uh, that's reasonable enough in and of itself. Is it always the way things should go? Not necessarily. Like his phrasing about this is the way it works. Uh, but I do think there's something to be said for you are paid based on past successes. That's how most business works, right? And that's how in any job interview in any industry – you say not just, I did these functions in my job, but I brought these levels of success. These are achievements that I made, right? So that makes sense to me. What makes less sense to me and what I kind of love is that he says, it is not usually about gender. (laughs) Judd. (laughs) Judd. What happened is that he was taken to task by a number of well-known people, uh, Lauren Collins, uh, who is a columnist for The New Yorker, and uh, a number of TV writers and well-known, uh, yeah, mostly female TV writers, said to him, uh, actually, uh, TV doesn't have to work this way. It could work this way. I'd like favored nations, which means uh, nobody makes more than anybody else within a certain tier, or... Uh, then another woman, Nell Scovell, who is a very well-known, uh, long-term TV writer who has a book out now about working at Letterman and on The Simpsons and Murphy Brown and other shows. Uh, she said, and I quote, here's what I hear every time I try to negotiate. The offer is take it or leave it. Negotiations are a game for men and often non-existent for women. I've made as much as 75% less than a man doing the exact same job, and I've had no choice but to say, okay. So this is where it really gets interesting. If Claire Foy had pushed back on season one, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, when she was first signing the deal, the conversation would have been, take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. Yeah. You're a nobody. She was not a nobody, but go with me here. Yeah. Uh, This is the job. This is what we're offering the end. Yeah. And maybe it was a two-year deal and that was the conversation. And more. You're lucky that we want you for this. A million girls are right behind you. Exactly. And that's always true, right? And everybody knows it from every angle, which is sometimes you you don't get a job and then you get a call because the person who did get the job, uh, you know, their last shoot went long and they can't make the shoot date. So now you get the call. Uh, Or they drop out or a million things. This is always very fluid. You know when you're auditioning, that there are 10 other people in the room who look just like you, they could have made it with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And maybe if it was only a one-year deal, if there was a second season conversation, it's going to be, well, look, if you push back, like they were always going to change the cast anyway. We knew this. So uh, maybe don't force them to that point early. 
uh, don't make it uncomfortable, or this is what they're offering, especially when you're doing it through a third person, through an agent, through a manager, what do you say? When they say, okay, I'll try for more, and then they come back and say, they say they're not moving. What's, what do you do then as a, you know, as a negotiator? Well, then what happens is like a lot of times they say, okay, well, we're going to go to the next person. And the next person does drop their rate. Sure. And then you are… And you're like, fuck. Well, that's your, that's your takeaway for negotiating mm-hmm. is we're going to go to the next person. Uh, so a TV writer, Audrey <coughs> Wachope, please pardon me if I mispronounce your name, Audrey, uh, said, this is a huge issue for writers as well. Uh, we can't rise as fast, meaning female writers can't rise as fast, when fired for Me Too or pregnancy or et cetera, and we're hired less because one of us is often enough, uh, one female writer in a room of 10 or one diverse writer or whatever. Right. But sure, the men came in with higher quotes because this is the story that's always being endorsed, right? Well, he asked. Mm-hmm. He asked for it. Really? Maybe did they ask too and they were told, okay, take it or leave it. Did they ask too and were told a million girls would love this job? This is the conversation that's still going on. And what was most interesting to me about Judd's tweet is even the men who think they are in it and woke and and there. On side. And yes, even they have these ingrained. Blind spots. Yes. It's happening right under his nose, probably happening on productions that he is on. And he doesn't know it. And the perceived value of whatever man is enough that if they negotiate, well, he's going to walk if he doesn't get more. Somebody somewhere, I'm not saying it's Judd Apatow himself, but somebody in his organization is like, fuck, we can't lose him. We better, we better kick in some more cash. And when a dude does it too, does the resulting conversation become who the fuck does he think he is? Never. The way it happens around women? Never. Who the, who the fuck does she think she is? Really? Her? And like, I can't say like, have I done that to a woman? Maybe. Have you? I, I don't want to say no. Because like, as we all know, the conditioning is deep. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. But I just, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Because of course, you don't want to take away anybody's opportunity to you know, really discuss what somebody's worth is. And not everybody who negotiates should be given everything that they want. Uh, that's part of why it's a negotiation, right? If you go in and say, no, I want a number that's, I don't know, 50 grand over what you just said. You don't expect somebody to say, okay, mm-hmm. maybe you do. Uh, but it's always meant to be a bit of a game, a dance or whatever, but the deck is kind of stacked. And you're right. Maybe we all kind of have it ingrained or maybe women more often or uh, people of color or who are otherwise underrepresented in all environments, but, you know, entertainment to start with say, well, I'm lucky to have this job. So, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue. This is a huge break for me. So, okay. And when do you stop saying that? When is the point where you push back and say, no, I'm going to hold out for more? Have we seen that happen? Have we heard of that happening and known it to be the case? Well, I I think that these are the times up conversations that are happening at the membership meetings where most recently, for example, Tracy Ellis Ross 
we talked right. about how she doesn't get paid as much as Anthony Anderson does. And of course, there are people who are going to throw in the yeah, buts and yeah, but he's a producer and yeah, but this. But we now know that she was taking these conversations to the Time's Up committee meetings and saying, hey, here's what's happening. What should I do? And other actors, producers, writers were sharing with her what the best practices were. Maybe you should come at it this way. Or fine, take what they give you, but then put in a clause saying, then I'm going to go work somewhere else too. And you have to release me on that level so I can make up the difference. I want to address another thing too, which is I love that she's collaborating with people and asking and that people are pooling their resources or this is how it works. Uh, We talked a few months ago about the spreadsheets that were going around about actor salaries and writer salaries to just promote transparency. But the other reason that this is difficult and also important is that, of course, in every case, we've talked about a woman who was paid less than a man in which they were playing either a married couple or in the case of Emmy Rossum and uh, William H. Macy, like uh, a partnership, right? They're the, the male and female lead. What's most interesting about that is that these are situations where off the top, maybe the dude is more well known because yes, because we rarely build products around women, but then the show is a success based on the alchemy of the cast together, then that person, then that woman has as much to do with the success as that man. But people are going, well, but his quote, but his blah, blah, blah. But you wouldn't have the success if you had cast another person. At that point, your value becomes increased because of your integral part of the show. And yet somehow they're still able to say to these women, no, you're, you're not you don't have as much value. Well, without me, he has nobody to bounce off. He has no mm-hmm. anything. People are coming here looking at this dynamic. Well, no, I don't ever. It makes me think it would be very interesting to go back and look at the salaries for Friday Night Lights, where Kyle Chandler and Connie Britton and the chemistry of those two people was ultimately what made mm-hmm. the show work. Yeah. And I have no idea what the pay structure was. Right. But when it's such a two-hander, uh, you know, it's it becomes obvious and also so hard to put your finger on yeah. to say, this is my proven value. Because how do you say my proven value is chemistry? Yeah. It's not quantifiable. So I think what we've come to here is shut up, Judd Apatow. <laughs> That's the takeaway. Uh, yeah, but that, yeah, no matter how with it and woke and smart you think you are, you definitely still have places where you can learn. And I appreciate that you put us in in that we as well. As much as we talk about all this stuff, there's always places where maybe we have, maybe we do make mistakes and there's always that possibility. So right now what we thought we'd do is read some emails that we got in response to last week's episode when we talked about war rooms. We went into a whole discussion of how we created our war room for the Oscars and our post-Oscar coverage. We asked you to share your own war room experiences. We got some great messages and some great insight. So I'd like to read an email from Hannah. And Hannah says, I own and run a dog daycare and boarding kennel. I work my I work by myself most days, which I love, but it can feel very isolating. Everything, everyone thinks my job is super happy, fun time, playing with puppies all day. 
And being a business owner in a small town, I can't exactly run my mouth about how shitty Becky's dog is to anyone willing to listen. Bonus points for using the name Becky. So I'm isolated, not just physically, but in terms of the understanding people have of what I do and my ability to express frustrations to the humans in my life. After about a year of this isolation, I was lucky to find my work comrades online. Facebook may now mostly be reserved for baby shower evites and Aunt Donna's minion memes, <laughs> but it also hosts my little oasis of fellow dog daycare owners who understand the daily grind of highs and lows, the emotional exhaustion, the immense pressure and responsibility, and also the isolation. Facebook is the location of our war room. We have private groups of daycare and kennel owners from every continent who are so incredibly bomb at solving problems that it's almost unbelievable. I've never started a discussion with guys I could come... I've never started a discussion with guys I could use some help and walked away without concrete solutions. Most people don't leave a comments thread without being legitimately helpful and awesome. And we all return the favor every chance we get. No topic off limits. I love this because, yes, we were talking about war rooms in terms of having a physical gathering. And for the most part, in the studies that we were talking about um, in terms of how companies are benefiting from war rooms, it was not much, not so much a virtual experience than an actual physical experience. And you were talking about, uh, Duanna, the writing room and being able to, like, smell someone's B.O., but there is here, especially for women and entrepreneurs who are in a niche business, there is a benefit to the digital, the virtual war room that, as we've seen from Hannah's example, is certainly a career asset. Yeah. Um, and we do have an email from Ruthie who uh, went into all kinds of fine points about uh, contract law after our inclusion rider discussion, which uh, is fascinating. Uh, she points out that uh, basically she takes us to law school here and it's very detailed and possibly above my pay grade. But one of the things that I really appreciated is she says, for a contract to exist, you need three things, an offer, acceptance of an offer, and something given in exchange for the offer, which is called consideration. Uh, so basically uh, what she's saying is adding an inclusion rider is just getting creator is just getting creative with what the ask is. Jennifer Lawrence will only agree to be, appear in your project if you hire a 50% female crew. That's her offer. By accepting her terms, you get her performance, which is the consideration. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, but then she talks about her experience with War Rooms, which I really liked. And she said that uh, when she started out her career, her clients would be doing offers of stocks and bonds, and people would tell war stories about all-nighters, quote, at the printer. Literally, these were rooms rented out at financial printing companies, and the lawyers and companies and bankers would all meet to hammer out the final few days of a deal before it would go to market, which always involved an impossible deadline. Getting everyone in the room was essential in order to whittle down the number of open points and to put the project on your back to get it over the finish line. That's a great phrase. Mm -hmm. In the digital age, this happens less and we're worse for it. At the printers, the printing company would order in whatever food from the top restaurants and there were endless snacks like delivery of Magnolia cupcakes at 3 a.m. And you could tell a lot about the law firm based on whether people wore suits at the printer or whether they were dressed for comfort. But more importantly, what the war room at the printer established is that we were all in the project together. Even working with people on the opposite side of the deal or transaction, which is by its nature adversarial, once we went into that room, 
We weren't leaving until we had come to an agreement and delivered the project to the printer for actual physical printing together. (laughs) It turned adversaries into friends, and it was always my favorite part of the deal, even if it meant no sleep and smelling someone's BO. That's an amazing story, and I love the bit about turning adversaries into friends because it's so true that you realize, yes. hey, these are all people who care deeply about a thing mm-hmm. that we're working on, and sometimes a change of environment or being locked in a room helps you see people differently. So build your war room, continue to share stories about your war rooms with us, or give us an anti-war room scenario. We want to hear that too. And we were just talking about contracts and negotiations and Judd Apatow. Yes, we've agreed, like, shut up, Judd Apatow. But if you want to share your contract negotiation experiences and the time that you got the, this is the best I can do, take it or leave it, uh, send send those to us too. Because as time's up, is meeting and committeeing and exchanging information and sharing best practice. So we are here, hopefully. So our next topic revolves around the new show, Rise, which premiered on NBC on Thursday night. And this is a show I have been waiting to see for a really long time. Uh, It is by uh, the creators of Friday Night Lights. It comes from Jason Kadams. And uh, it was in pilot season last year. It ultimately went ahead, but then they held it for this March premiere. So it's been in the conversation for a really long time. And, you know, I'm not sure it's one of those shows that would automatically be something you would want to watch. On the one hand, it's about theater and like gets deep into that world. On the other hand, teenagers. Yes. And that's my hook. Yes. Their love and drama. So, you know, uh, what would, what's been your thought about this? Are you going to make, are you going to catch up and watch this? I think so. I mean, I'm super into high school teenagers, performers, all of that. I really liked the trailer. Um, and I really like Ali'i. She, of course, is the actress from Moana. Can you say her full name? Because I know that she was on your show on The Social yeah. and taught you to say her name. Yeah. And I spent last year at the Oscars getting you to remind me how to say it. And right. I just like you saying the full thing. So just do it. Ready? Ali, Ali'i Cravalho. See? Like, it's a fun name to say. Ali'i. It's yeah. so good. Ali'i Cravalio. Anyway, I love Ali'i. I want to support Ali'i, so I will be catching up at some point. Um, and also, there was a draw because for those of us who were major mega fans of Friday Night Lights, there's the Jason Kadams factor. Right. So he is intimately involved here. He's the creator and showrunner as he was the creator of Friday Night Lights. Uh, of the show, the movie was made by Peter Berg, blah, blah, blah. In both cases, uh, the shows are based on nonfiction books. And this is where it gets really interesting. This is kind of a new uh, arena for material. Uh, Pitch Perfect is based on a nonfiction book by Mickey Rapkin uh, about the college acapella world. And this show, Rise, is based on a nonfiction book called Drama High about a real guy who was not a drama teacher, who was not trained, Mm -hmm. uh, who basically evolved the drama department into this like 44-year juggernaut of amazingness. Well, and also wasn't Mean Girls based on a nonfiction book called like Queen Bees and... Queen Bees and Wannabes, that's right. And that book was uh, like a 
uh, almost a, an instructional, a self-help book. So yeah. yeah, it's a it's a really surprising and rich place that people are beginning to to draw from. A new uh, IP. There's a great nonfiction book about uh, about a stage door camp, a stage door manor, which is a theater camp that everybody you've ever heard of, Mandy Moore and Anna Kendrick and everybody else has attended. Uh, and that sort of was loosely where camp the yeah. movie came from. Well, I mean, I said, I, I just shouted out new IP because everybody's looking for sources for IP now. Right. And okay. this is, yeah, the nonfiction to fiction adaptation is, it seems to be in television. And film where Pitch Perfect was a pretty big yeah. and mean girls, as you say. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's start reading. Um, but it's interesting because in cases like this, I think people think that either it was uh, it was a book that was either a, a biography of one person, which it kind of was, but wasn't. It was a biography of a school drama department, mm -hmm. if you will, uh, or that it's kind of that all of the characters involved are characters in the show, and that's not the case. And it wasn't the case with Friday Night Lights. There are some uh, similarities, but it's not, uh, it's not the same. So the book, uh, focuses on the work in the drama department of a man called Lou Volpe. Uh, and the character in Rise is Lou Matsukeli. Uh, nice. not bad, right? Uh, and what's interesting or what was headline making was that Lou Volpe, uh, it is pointed out in the nonfiction book is gay, uh, who came out, I think, later in life. Uh, but Lou Matsukeli is is not gay, or at least not gay in the first season. He has a family. I believe Lou Volpe may have also had a, may also have a family. Obviously, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, but Jason Kadams took a lot, a lot of heat for this, right? He was accused of straightwashing mm -hmm. the character. And then uh, at the TCAs, he was asked about it and he said, you know, ultimately when I was thinking about writing a middle-aged man who was so focused on his job, I was drawing a lot from my own life and focusing on my life. And that was also interpreted as, oh, so you're straight watching a character so that you can be more comfortable with it. Right. So, you know, that was all kind of going on in January and I feel two ways about it. What do you think, first of all? I've been talking for a, a long stretch here. Here's what I think. I think that we've had great success, especially online, with drawing attention to these kinds of issues when characters are straight-washed or gay-washed. So I think about Scarlett Johansson, Ghost in the Shell. I think about Aloha, Emma Stone. Mm -hmm. So in the past, without this moment, without this platform – Things like this would just happen, and those who were offended by it never got a chance to speak out, weren't heard, and then the issue wouldn't be in the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. However, I do think that each case is so specific, right? You have to understand where the source material was coming from, who the source material was about, and the nuances in that. So what's come out in this incident in particular is like the source material on which this was based originally did not have the sexual orientation like in a very focused like 
present way until like what, the very end? Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, I read the book. It was a little while ago now. But yeah, certainly, obviously, that's a fact about the man. But again, we're we're talking about a story told through a series of tellers, right? Mm -hmm. So the book was written by a man named Michael Sokolov, who essentially is doing like a a biography follow or a documentary follow. That information was not front and center in the book, certainly. Secondly, um, again, it all, yeah, so no, it wasn't front and center in the book. It was not a major part of the story that was being told. Yeah, and this is where the difficulty is. Like, I don't want to fuck up my answer. I'm scared because this is the moment in which we're living in. Like, we don't, I don't want people jumping on our conversation and not putting out and not like pulling out the nuance of it, but this is where it's complicated because the same issue happened about a month ago with Annihilation, where Annihilation was also accused of not representing the actual racial makeup of certain characters, but then it came out that the book on which Annihilation was based in the first book, like the race of the characters was revealed in the sequel or the follow-up books, but in the first book, the race of the characters was not mentioned. Right. So then when the filmmakers were doing it, they were basing it on the first book. And so that was a whole conversation. Now, the artists like Natalie Portman, for example, has spoken about this and she spoke about it quite sensitively where she was like, I, I, I understand why people are upset. It is regretful. She didn't dismiss the criticism. She wasn't like, well, fuck you. We read the book and it wasn't in the book. Like, I appreciate that she didn't do that, but she also left it open to, yes, we do need to get better. So I don't know where it goes, you know? I mean, there are so many ways to to look at this. The other thing I think is interesting about that conversation, about annihilation, about whatever, is that we talk about, well, and especially in uh, this conversation about adapting nonfiction books. If you're adapting a fiction book, if you're adapting The Hunger Games, you're going to have a Katniss and a Gale, yeah. and maybe they didn't look the way you thought or whatever, but... Those are the characters as created, right? Yeah. And the conversations, the controversy when Hermione in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is played by a black woman and not as, who doesn't look like Emma Watson, when in fact Hermione's race is never discussed in any of the books, yeah. is where I'm very, very grateful for these conversations. When we talk about adapting uh, nonfiction books, it gets a little more interesting, right? When you talk about Mean Girls, for example, which is obviously a satire, Queen Bees and Wannabes was a real straight ahead book. Uh, There were no real characters in that book. There were sketches upon which you could compile a Regina George, Mm -hmm. but there was no one Regina George there. Yeah. Uh, Even in Friday Night Lights, uh, there is no Eric Taylor. Right. There's no character who is a sweet, loving man who, you know, is, is, uh, trying to struggle between being a good man and being a good football coach. Right. And most interestingly to me, and not to bring it back to names, but here we are. I mentioned the names at the beginning. The high school teacher in the book Drama High is Lou Volpe. Mm -hmm. The high school teacher in the show Rise is Lou Matsukelli. Had the high school teacher in the show Rise been called, I don't know, uh, Michaelo Chirko? 
would we be having this conversation? I was sketching around for another Italian name right. there. That's where I was going. Uh, is it because we feel as though this is meant to be a biography, an homage, and as, instead of an adaptation? You know, we talked about Emma Stone earlier, and of course she played Billie Jean King in a movie. That's a real person and a real, uh, it, that's a real thing that you're portraying. But for various reasons, legal and otherwise, when you adapt uh, a story about real people, you change the names, you change the locations because you have to uh, do that. And so I'm wondering whether uh, had, yeah, is this partly based on the fact that people think this is a closer portrayal of the man portrayed in the book than Jason Kadams ever expected it to be? Well, the reason why we brought this up or we wanted to add this to the lineup is because I talked about Natalie Portman's reaction and her uh, response to the annihilation criticism and Jason Kadams. I mean, Jason Kadams, this was this question was put to him. Right. And so Natalie Portman, to be fair, if I'm not mistaken, she she was uh, was she a producer on Annihilation or she just was performing? Not just, but I don't see her listed as a producer. Right. So. It's a little different in that she was hired to play a role and is not necessarily crafting the story in the same way, although certainly at her level, she has the power to do so if she wants to. Jason Kadams, uh, on the other hand, is, uh, you know, he created this show. He also, of course, uh, show ran Parenthood, which it's worth noting is another adaptation, and it's something that they talk about. There's a Vulture article here uh, where... He discusses uh, the process of developing Rise and then talks about uh, the reaction. I think that being at the TCAs was the first time that Jason Kadams discovered there was a controversy here when he was asked about that and said, oh, I, you know, I really feel, felt like I needed to make it kind of my own story. The backstory here is that he was approached by NBC uh, who had optioned this book, uh, and that's always... And that's often the case that somebody owns a property and says to a creative, do you want to take a crack at this? With the assumption that, yeah, they're going to adapt what they want to. Uh, and he says that he always intended to talk about homosexuality and gender issues. And then Jason Kadam says, I think I've kind of already responded. The story about straight washing or et cetera was definitely a misinterpretation of what the show is, and I feel like I've already responded to that. I feel like it was a real miscommunication, and I'm excited now that the show is premiering and people will be able to see the show and be able to see that this is a show that celebrates inclusivity certainly as much as any show I've ever worked on. Uh, and the reporter responds, I've read the book over the weekend and certainly lose homosexuality is in the book, but is not as central as I expected it was going to be. When you were working on this, did you have conversations with the writer uh, of the book, Michael Sokolov, or the real guy, Lou Volpe himself, about the direction you were taking it in. Kadem says, my conversations with Lou were wonderful, and they were really about me getting to meet this incredibly inspiring person who is everything that Michael Sokolov wrote about in his beautiful book and more. That was really the focus of our conversations. It wasn't really talking about the specifics of what my story was going to be, other than I made it very clear to him and Michael and everybody that this was an inspiration and a jumping off point for a show, and it wasn't going to be a literal interpretation. 
Lou read the script when I felt brave enough to show him the script, and I can tell you he was incredibly moved by the story we were telling and that the story of Lou's sexuality never came up in my conversations with Lou Volpe. So right there, uh, first of all, you can see how it's confusing with the Lou and the Lou and the Mm -hmm. so forth, and that Kadem sort of implies that he has, if not gotten permission, been real clear about this is a jumping off point, this is a whatever. And then he, uh, the interviewer goes on to say, even the way you just said it was a jumping off point, one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading, and he's cut off, and Kadem says, I don't want to answer any more questions on this subject. I responded to it. I would like to talk about the show. I don't want to get more into the subject. And the interviewer says, I was going to ask about the students. Okay, great, says Kadem's. I mean, this is one of those things where... uh, It reads defensive. It reads really defensive. And as you said, you know, I value and we value, and I include Jason Kadams and the royal we there, uh, we should value the conversations and the internet that comes up to present us with things we might not have considered, with perspectives that we don't see. And I also understand how frustrating it might be if your intent was being misinterpreted and nobody had yet seen the show. That's the worst part of all this is that it's all talk about a book that exists and a show that until Thursday did not. Right. But it reads defensive. Mm -hmm. It's really worth noting that one of the characters in Rise, one of the teen characters is... uh, trans, and if I understand correctly, is played by a trans actor, which, you know, is really important and a way that they get it right. So maybe that's another reason that he feels defensive, but it really does make you feel that, yeah, he could take a page from a Natalie Portman book, right? He could sort of go, uh, while I feel like the characterization is there, we have had more conversations in the room as a result of this, and we've checked ourselves on X, Y, and Z, or whatever it is. I I, I really, I see how this all happened. Yeah. I sort of, we walked through the whole journey of the project because it feels important to see where he got here, but the defensiveness doesn't, no, it doesn't look good. But it also doesn't move the conversation forward. In a not exactly the same scenario, but in the same family, I want to say, was Greg Berlanti's interview with BuzzFeed to promote Love, Simon, which just opened this weekend. I'm going to go, I'm going to be seeing the movie right after we wrap this podcast. Um, I can't wait. I'm super excited. But the, in short, the main character in Love, Simon is a young teenage boy who's gay and it's like a gay teen rom-com. And it's adapted from a YA novel. That's right. So the character of Simon is played by Nick Robinson, who is not gay. And so there hasn't been much controversy or much yelling about why didn't you cast a real gay actor in this role? However, uh, Greg Berlanti, who is gay, who directed the film, did sort of address that. And I feel like this move the conversation forward while saying, yes, we have to get better. It's important to provide acting opportunities for people who haven't had 
representation and inclusion in the past. But here is the thinking behind it. And this is his quote. Um, so I'll, I'll read sort of the sentence that comes before his quote. The current conversation is more about casting LGBT actors in LGBT roles, an issue Berlanti has thought about quite a bit. Now, here's what he says. You're trying to cast the best actor for the part, and that's usually hard enough. Then there's the element of, as a DGA member, I'm not going to ask someone their sexuality when they walk in the room. DGA is Directors Guild of America. That's right. So if they're not out on the internet, they may just be a private person. Then there's people you know, but the world doesn't know. So here's how he is not being defensive, but what he is is giving us mm, amazing work insight, right? Context. Context. So I like his point about being a DGA Directors Guild of America director, because when you're auditioning and you're trying to fill this role and he's a young gay boy and you have young gay, or not, and you have young men coming into audition, at what point do you introduce the discussion? Oh, that was great. Do you, are you, are you gay? It, it's weird, right? It's weird. Um, and it also assumes that that is not only something that uh, that we know, yeah. but that is, uh, I have real sensitivity about this, especially in the case of teenage characters, because often you want somebody who is young or as close to young and the age of the character yeah. as you can. My first reaction when you said played by Nick Robinson was to Google how old he is. Yep. He's 23. Mm -hmm. uh, and a 23-year-old who probably made this movie when he was 22 21? or 21, yeah. uh, may know uh, what their sexuality is, or they may not. I think it is well within the range of people that we know don't don't always figure this out, mm -hmm. right? It, it, you know, just to circle back, uh, the Lou Volpe, the real guy in Drama High, yeah. came out late in life. Mm -hmm. uh, is that person gay when they're 20? Maybe they are. Maybe they don't think they are. Maybe they don't identify that way. It's certainly murkier than it seems. That's right. And so for, for our purposes right now, we're talking about Kadams's response and Greg Berlanti's response. Kadams sounded defensive. Greg Berlanti, I mean, he just in two sentences, three sentences, really articulated for me, and I feel like I know the industry somewhat well, a new way, a new context of looking at it. Oh, yeah. Like, when does the question come up? And again, there are people who have not come out yet, or at least have only come out in private and not online. And then what he says about there are actors you know who are gay, but not everybody else does. So when does that come into the conversation? And that is all, all of it is useful for us right now in this moment where, yes, it is definitely important for representation to be included in stories, but also for the people who are playing those roles. However, it is not as simple as just saying, cast this person, cast that person, because as he points out very simply, but so clearly, at what point does the conversation come up? And that exists behind the scenes as well. There are a number of diversity initiatives in television and film for people who uh, might not otherwise get an opportunity to be uh, to get experience in writing rooms or on sets or so forth. Uh, but again, that's for people who self-identify. That's right. right. 
Uh, if somebody walks in the room and they are, first of all, known as the diversity hire, which can come with its own level of asterisk or stigma, it yeah. doesn't always, if that person doesn't look visibly diverse, for example, mm -hmm. and people know that they are uh, under that umbrella of yeah. being here because of that, the diversity program, yeah. do people start to wonder? Do people start to whisper? Do they ask? Is that okay? No. Or maybe, or not, and maybe it will apply to the stories and maybe it won't, uh, but it's always a more complicated situation than it can seem at first gasp. I agree. And to take it to a real world application, especially where we are in our business, in my business, over time for Lainey Gossip, we're now 15 years old, I have wanted to add as broad of a range of voices to be heard on our website as possible. And I'm very proud of what we've done. We just celebrated our 15th anniversary with a group dinner, all of us together gathered. Um, and, you know, I am a woman of color. You are a woman of color. Kathleen is a woman of color. But we still have gaps at Laney Gossip. 100%. Would I like to include more of an LGBTQ voice? Yes. Emily, our site manager, is a lesbian. She is part of the team, of a critical part of our team, but she doesn't write. Um, and well, she writes, but she's not one of the writers on our site. So for sure, we're, we're definitely looking for that. But how do I do it without tokenizing the person and also introducing the voice organically? I recently got a great email from somebody and I appreciated the feedback. Hey, Lainey, you know, uh, it's so great that you're amplifying voices and you're always talking about um, your Chinese culture and Kathleen is talking about black culture and Sarah has written about um, her indigenous background. But what about a South Asian voice? When are you going to have a South Asian voice? And yes, that is a great point too. And I definitely want to add a South Asian voice, but I I would like to do it in an organic way, the way that it has, it's happened for all of our writers. You and I are friends and we got to know each other and that's why you know, we have been working together similarly with Kathleen and Sarah. Sarah and I met each other online on Twitter and we developed a friendship. I'd like to create that and also check the box. But for me as a boss and, you know, somebody who has a platform, I am in a space where I'm trying to find out how to do that. And I would like to be yelled at, but I would also like someone to give me a solution. Is it as simple as like posting something on Craigslist? I don't know that that fits in with the tone of our site. I think what's most interesting here is that something we have talked about over and over, not just us in terms of entertainment that also applies to non-entertainment worlds is it's all about relationships, mm -hmm. right? It is people want to work with people who they like. I always come back to the Tina Fey line that is actually a Lauren Michaels line about who do you want to see at the metaphorical photocopier at 3 a.m.? It's people want to work with people who they like. If you have friendships with bunches of people who are, who are diverse, who have a variety of insights and perspectives, that's great. That's amazing. You have that pool to draw from. If you don't, if those are not people who cross your path organically, then your search, our search, everybody's becomes a bit more structured, right? Yeah. A bit more 
uh, overt. And I think what has happened in years and decades past is people haven't wanted to do that work because it feels inorganic. Yeah. Because it feels like it's fake. Your point about wanting it to be organic and having voices that work on the site because we tend to share some perspectives, if not all, and we tend to get along and and because the friendships and relationships are baked into the DNA of the site. Uh, I think people worry that doing a more overt search will, you know, will, will belie that that camaraderie. And I think we've all seen situations in which tokenism doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. When ticking boxes just for the sake of ticking boxes yeah. absolutely doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to have both. But and yeah, there's I, an added layer of, of challenge too, where you, you, you do expand your search field. For example, I exp- I expanded my search field and I, I taught last semester. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, my students are fourth year students. They're ready to go out into the they're ready to go out into the world and look for new opportunities. And I found talent. And in fact, I found several very, very young, talented people who could definitely work within this Laney gossip um, structure. And I am interested in having them join. And yet they have other opportunities. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Sure. Absolutely. Like they're honor students. They're getting opportunities everywhere. So me offering them something at Laney Gossip is just one of 18 things that they're looking at. I may not be able to get that person. So that is the added layer of context here too. Well, and there are a million of those layers in each and every project, right? Um, And so this is why it is fascinating to look at what else we can do and others can do. But it is perhaps folly to assume when you see something that looks on its surface uh, like no effort was made yeah. to assume that's the case. Right. And not, not to defend Jason Kadams. No, here uh, but, I'm, in- but I, I, I can defend his creative choices yes. while still condemning his, uh, his reaction. reaction to yeah. the conversation. And while this podcast is... It's sometimes about tell, telling celebrities what they should have done. Uh, maybe change the name next time, Kadams, mm-hmm. and avoid the problem altogether. There you go. So thanks for listening. But the thing we would leave you with is give us, give me ideas. I'm here to like try and improve the site. I think that more and more for us at Laney Gossip, what we have tried to do is be part of the conversation, but then be open to how we can be better at being part of the conversation. I'm not being Mary Sue here when I say, I think that is arguably one of our favorite parts. You know, we always joke about yell at us, tell us what you think. And some of the yelling is, uh, you know, sometimes you guys yell about things where I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure about why I made that decision. And sometimes I think you would agree, it really makes us think. And we go, huh, let's wrap that perspective in next time. And if you have talent you want to recommend to us, a writer, um, a a culture critic that you think uh, could be, that we should be paying attention to, 100% send it to us. Because if there's one thing we love, it's more reading and more times and more articles to text to each other at three in the morning. Where are you? Wake up. Read this. And more friends. 
I guess. No, actually. <laughs> right. More friends, but also no new friends. And this comes back to the digital war room, right? Isn't it great to have amazing, an amazing bunch of friends online who you never actually have to shower and see? On that note, we'll be back next week. Check us out on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play. Leave us your comments or email and tweet us. Thank you so much for listening. Show your work. Bye. Bye. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.